Well, good morning. My name is Jonathan Whitmer. I am the associate pastor here, and uh, I don't know you about you, but I'm always so excited to come and worship, and this morning I was especially excited to come and worship and see our students lead us in worship, and I'm thankful for Ryan and for BJ. For years, they have worked with our students and helped them um, develop their skills and their music ability to, to use in service to God. And so for those of you who are younger here and you play an instrument, this could be you someday. It could be. I mean, I was sitting here this morning watching them lead worship, and I can remember, I've been here long enough, it's a little scary, I can remember when some of these kids were in diapers. I can remember some of these kids wearing just their diapers in my basement of my house. Uh, uh, and that's another story that we'll get into at another time. Uh, but, but it's so exciting to see our students use their, their gifts and abilities to serve the Lord. And so, hey, for you kids in elementary school, as you play instruments and things like that, we'd love to have you come and use those gifts and abilities and lead us in worship. And so think about that. Don't forget that. We, we'd love to plug you in and use you. Uh, I don't know about you, but I'm also excited for this series that we are continuing here as we lead up to Easter. I'm thankful that, uh, that Pastor Matt has, has been challenging us with some of the sayings of Jesus from the cross. And I'm thankful that I have an opportunity this morning just to take one of those sayings and share with you this morning. And, and uh, thankful for this opportunity just to, to open God's word with you. And before we do that, why don't we just pause for a word of prayer. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are our God. We thank you that, uh, that we are here to worship you. And we're here to hear from you. And Lord, my heart and my prayer this morning is that, uh, that your, your word would speak clearly to us, that my words would clearly com- uh, communicate your heart to us this morning, that we would hear it and we would choose to live it out in our lives. Father, we are so thankful that we can know you, that we can be part of your family. We're thankful for Easter, and we're, we're looking forward to an amazing Easter here at Mount Calvary. And we pray that, that you give us opportunity to invite many people, and that we see many people come here and hear about the good news that you loved us so much, you sent Jesus to be our Savior. So, Father, Take away the distractions and just help us focus on you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I don't know about you, but if someone was to come up and ask me what your favorite drink is, it's pretty clear for me. Mexican Coke. First year we went to Mexico on a mission trip, I was introduced to Mexican Coke and I'm afraid I've become addicted. I think it's a real problem in my life. Uh, between being made with real sugar, not high, not what, what fructose corn syrup or things like, real sugar and bottled in a glass bottle, it doesn't get any better than that. Mexican Coke. I love me some Mexican Coke. As a matter of fact, I think I love it a little too much. Because about a month ago when Pastor Matt was preaching uh, the, the sermon on Lent and he was saying that sometimes we slip into depending on our comforts more than Christ, I became convicted. I became really, really convicted. And so I decided to give up soda, including Mexican Coke, for Lent. 
And once you know it, now everywhere I look, I see Mexican Coke. Everywhere I look, it's there in that bottle just looking back at me. But the reality is I need to find my satisfaction and my joy not in a cold bottle of Mexican Coke, but in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I I gave up Mexican Coke for Lent. But if I was to ask you, what is your favorite drink? And we would take the time here this morning and have you answer. I would imagine that in a room this size, we get a variety of answers, right? And it's a good thing we live in the United States where, where we have so many choices. I mean, you go to Giant, our Giant here in Elizabethtown, and they have a whole aisle full of drinks, right? Both sides, There are so many choices. And a matter of fact, the next aisle to it is like half the aisle is full of drink mixes. And so, I mean, there are so many choices when it comes to drinks. And it's a good thing that we have so many choices because I think our tastes are so various. I mean, it just just kind of, you know, each of us could be different. And we saw that firsthand, uh, you know, about a few weeks ago. Uh, We were meeting as a staff to plan Easter and Pastor Matt was kind enough. He said, I'm going to buy Starbucks for everybody at our meeting. And so he's a really nice guy. And so I went along with him to get the Starbucks drinks. And we brought eight drinks back. And can you believe it? Not one drink was the same as another drink. We brought eight different drinks back. We have a variety of choices. And, and, and we choose a variety of ways to quench our thirst. But you know what? In reality, we all get thirsty. It's all a natural physical response. It's a need that we have to drink. It's a universal physical need. And our Savior got thirsty too. We're continuing our series on the seven sayings of Jesus from the cross. And we're picking up in John 19 again. And we're going to look at his saying, I thirst. It follows last week's sermon uh, when, when in, G, in John 19, 26, and 27, it's the, it's, the, it's the saying following that one, but as I was looking at this, it's, it's probably not the fourth saying in, 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 in order. It's probably the fifth. So we're a little out of order. We'll jump back and get that next week. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me uh, to John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. And this statement is one word in the Greek. It's one little word. And I didn't realize that until I started studying it, until I started looking at it. And when I realized it was one little word, there's a few things that came to mind. First thing is this. It's one word. How hard is that to mess up? I mean, it's just one word. It can't be that hard to mess up, right? And the second thing that came to my mind is, I am going to be our children's ministry volunteers, Sunday morning children's ministry volunteers' favorite pastor, because this sermon is going to be short and sweet. And then I remembered that our elementary school kids are in the service with us this morning, and so I might be your favorite pastor too, as you have your kids sitting with you trying to keep them quiet through this service. But even though it's one word... The message of Jesus' word speaks volumes to us. So let's look at John chapter 19, verses 28 and 29. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch 
and held it to his mouth. As we look at our text today, as we, as we try to grasp and understand the content of what Jesus was saying, I think it's important that we understand the context of what's happening around this statement, what's happening before and what's happening after, so we can clearly understand what is Jesus trying to communicate to us today. What was he trying to communicate from the cross, and what is he trying to communicate to us today? What, what challenge does it, challenges does he want to leave us Today, for those who are following him. And so as we look at this statement, I think it's important to look at what happens right before his I thirst statement. And we know what happens right before it in John chapter 16, verses 26 and 27. We talked about it last week. Jesus speaks to his mother Mary and to the disciple John. It says, when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. Mary is present at the scene of the cross. She's there. And I'm sure that she's heartbroken. As she watches her son hang on the cross, I'm sure that she feels helpless as he's hanging there suffering. And as, as, as difficult as it is for her to watch, I suspect the reason that she is there is because she doesn't want him to die alone. I remember when my Mimi, my grandmother, uh, I got the call and said that she was under hospice care. It was my last grandmother, last grandparent living. And it was probably the, the grandparent that I was closest to. We had a special relationship. She had a, a big impact on my life. And so when I got the call that she was under hospice care, I knew that my time with her was limited. And so I made, I made a, a, a decision that I was going to do everything in my power to spend as much time with her as possible because I was never going to get this chance again. So at least once a week, I drive an hour to Millersburg to spend some time with my Mimi. And I don't regret any of that. Those were great times. And I remember as her health declined and it got worse and worse and worse, uh, my dad and I having this discussion that, uh, that we didn't want her to die by herself. We didn't want her to die alone. We wanted to be there so she knows that she, would, she was loved, that, that, that she was there for us so many times, and we wanted to be there for her. And I remember that last morning getting the call from my dad saying, Mimi's not doing well. I don't think she's going to make it through the night, make it through the day. And I remember dropping everything and hopping into the car and driving to Millersburg that one last time. And I remember walking into her room and realizing that I was a minute late. She had just passed. And I remember feeling so disappointed that I didn't get an opportunity to say one last goodbye to my Mimi. But I remember looking in the room, and there was my dad. I remember feeling, but at least she didn't die alone. And I think Mary is here at the cross, heartbroken, watching her son suffer, but she loved him so much that she didn't want him to die alone. 
And as hard as this day would have been for Mary, she shouldn't have been surprised, right? She shouldn't have been surprised that this day was coming. Remember Simeon in Luke chapter 2? Simeon was a righteous man, and God told him that he would not die before he saw the Savior. And so Simeon was at the temple when Mary and Joseph brought Jesus, baby Jesus, to the temple to dedicate him as their firstborn son. If you, let's just quick turn over to, to Luke chapter 2, Luke chapter 2, and, and, and let's pick this story up in verse 25. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was a righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he saw the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to offer him according to the custom of the law, he took him up into his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you're letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you've prepared in the presence of all peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. A sword will pierce through your own soul also. So here in Luke 2, Simeon is blessed Jesus and says, My eyes have seen the salvation of all people. But in Luke 2.35, Simeon also told Mary, A sword would pierce your own soul as you watched your son suffer. Now, Jesus death, now at Jesus' death, Mary was experiencing what Simeon told her there at the temple when Jesus was a baby. Your soul would be pierced. You would, you would mourn and suffer as you watched your son die. Mary was at the cross, but so was John. And Jesus charges John to take care of his mom. Jesus knew that he would not be around to care for his mom, and so he tasked John with this important responsibility. And it's interesting because Jesus had other half-brothers, right? Children of, of, of Mary and Joseph, but he chose John to take care of her. wonder why that is. Well, at this point, Jesus' half-brothers weren't believers. They weren't followers of him. They didn't, they didn't even really believe this Jesus was who he said he was. This is just like our brother that we like beat up in the backyard, this isn't the Savior. And so I think that, that, that Jesus' concern for not just Mary's physical well-being, but her spiritual well-being, tells John, please take care of my mom. Please take care of my mom. And so Jesus, in his compassion, makes a plan for his mom to be cared for. And it summarizes Jesus' ministry, right? He had compassion and cared for people who found themselves in difficult circumstances. And so before Jesus' I thirst statement, we see Jesus is hanging from the cross and he, and he, and he says something to, to Mary and he says something to John and they're there and they're, they're, they're watching him suffer. But something else happens before this I thirst statement. We see that darkness covers the land. Darkness covers the land. As we look at other crucifixion accounts in, in the Gospels, Matthew 25, Mark 15, and Luke 23, they all talk about this darkness. 
Matthew, 20, Matthew 27, 45 says, Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. At noon, on that very first Good Friday, it got dark. I mean, it got really dark. There was no, when I mean, you think about it, uh, we don't really experience darkness here because we've got streetlights and, and everything like that. There's all this, you know, even at night, it's not dark, dark. They didn't have any of that back in Jesus' day. And here in, in the middle of the day at noon, it gets dark. The sun would have been at its peak in the Mideastern sky at that point. It was the brightest, hottest part of the day, and all of a sudden it goes dark. It goes completely dark. Darkness falls onto the land, and lots of commentators have a variety of thoughts on what the darkness symbolizes, but they think it probably communicates two important things. The first it communicates, it's a picture of God's judgment on sin. Like the plague of darkness in Egypt in Exodus 10, it communicates God's judgment on sin. It's a picture of his judgment on sin. At noon when darkness fell, an even worse torture fell on Jesus. King Jesus, he'd been denied by the Jewish leaders and the crowd. He'd been rejected by Roman authorities. He's been betrayed by Jesus. The rest of the disciples had, had scattered and abandoned him. And now he's hanging on the cross and it gets dark. And his father, God the Father, turns his back on his son in the dark. There in the darkness... Jesus was alone and abandoned. It's been a few interesting weeks at our house because Wesley's having a hard time sleeping, which means that we're not sleeping well, which is really, really fun. And he doesn't want to be in his room at night in the dark. He wants mommy to lay on the floor and sleep with him, which is not a good situation. It's not comfortable, it's not a good situation, it's, it's not fun for anybody. Or he doesn't want to be in, the, in his room in the dark. He, he, he wants more than a night light on, he wants another light. And, and, and we've come to this realization that if we leave his door open with the hall light shining in, that'll be good enough. That'll be good enough that he will, he will be willing to go to sleep and mommy won't have to lay on the floor and, and so life is good. And I got to think about this like, What's, what's going on? What's, what, what's going on with this? But, but Zach, I mean, Zachary, sorry, Zachary, I do that all the time. Wesley, um, Wesley doesn't want to sleep in his room when it's totally dark. And when it's dark and the door is closed, he feels alone and isolated and abandoned from the rest of the family. Because he goes to bed before everybody else. And he doesn't want that. He doesn't want to be alone and isolated. And when we look at Jesus hanging on the cross in the dark, I think he was feeling alone and isolated from his father. Some, some commentaries say at this point he began to bear the hell of the punishment for all of our sins, separation from God, in the dark, hanging alone and isolated. So darkness is a picture of God's judgment on sin, but it's also a picture of God's mourning over his son's sacrifice and ultimate, ultimately giving up his life. God's one and only son, the 
perfect and sinless was the final sacrifice for the sins of the world. And it's interesting, right? In Luke 2, when Jesus is born, what does God do? God lights up the sky. He sends angels to celebrate and declare to the shepherds that the Savior of all people has been born. So the sky lights up in celebration. And now here in Matthew 27, as he is hanging on the cross for all the people's sins, it goes dark. It goes dark. And God is mourning as he watches his son suffer and give the ultimate sacrifice, his life. So these are some of the things that happened just before Jesus' I thirst statement that we're looking at this morning here in John 19.28. Let's look at uh, verse 28 again. And, and, and it's, John says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture, I thirst. You know, as we look at our text here, as we, as we look at all that's happening at the crucifixion, it's clear that we, we see both Jesus' deity and his humanity, that he is fully God and fully man. And it's really interesting as we look at, at this. In the beginning of John, chapter, uh, John 19, verse 28, John gives us some profound insight into what Jesus is thinking. He helps us understand, hey, what is Jesus thinking as he hangs here on the cross? And John says, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill Scripture. After this, after everything that has surrounded his crucifixion, after all Jesus' other statements from the cross, after, after it got dark, after all the things that people did to him on the way to the cross, after all these details, it would seem very clearly that others are influencing and governing what was happening here in the situation and the events leading to Jesus' death. I mean, think about it. From Judas leading the religious leaders to arrest Jesus, to the mock trials of the chief priests and Caiaphas, the high priest, when they, when they find him guilty of blasphemy, to taking Jesus to Pilate, the governor of Judea, who finds him innocent, but when he finds out that he is from Galilee, he sends him to Herod, the governor of, 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 of Galilee. And so he goes to Herod, and Herod mocks him, but he finds that he is also innocent, so he sends him back to, to Pilate. And the second trip to Pilate, Pilate caves to the cries of the crowd. And instead of releasing Jesus, he releases the criminal, Barabbas. To the Roman soldiers who are following Pilate's authority, leading Jesus to Golgotha, hammering the nails through his hands and his feet and hanging him on the cross. When you look at all of those activities, all those things surrounding the cross, I don't know about you, but you know what I think? This is total anarchy. This is out of control. He was innocent. He didn't deserve any of that. And yet, yet this is just out of control. And when things get out of control, when life gets out of control, it's a very helpless feeling. It's a feeling like, like, like we're, we're just watching everything unfold and we can't do anything about it. And in the Whitmer household, we are ex experiencing something that some of you have already experienced and some of you will, teaching a child how to drive a car. And I remember the first time I got in the passenger seat and Haley was in the driver's seat. And I felt like I was out of control. 
And it's not because Haley's not a bad driver. She is very cautious and very conscientious. But I'm the one that always sits in the driver's seat. I'm the one that does all the driving. I'm the one that's, that's in control of the car. And so now sitting in the passenger seat, no matter how many times I try to pump the imaginary brakes in front of me or hit the imaginary gas pedal or, or steer the imaginary steering wheel, I have no control over the car. And it's a helpless feeling. And again, it's not because Haley's a bad driver. She's a good driver. But it's I'm used to being in control. And when you're not in control, it's helpless. It's a helpless, helpless feeling. And as out of control as the situation seems surrounding the cross, nothing happens by accident. Nothing happens by accident. Everything has gone according to the plan, God's master plan for the redemption of all humanity. And it's interesting the words that John uses. He uses the words finished and fulfilled there in verse 28. And they're very similar in the Greek. They both, they both communicate the idea of accomplishing a task, bringing something to close or bringing something to an end or, or carrying out a command. And it's interesting that John uses these words because what it's telling us, he makes it very clear that, that Jesus is in the end game now, right? He is getting ready to go to the cross and his sole focus and his sole purpose is he wants to fulfill scripture. He wants to finish God's plan of salvation, So even though it looks like God the Father and our Savior Jesus are at the mercy of evil mankind, that is not the case. That's not the case. They are in control. Everything's going according to their ultimate rescue plan. So make no mistake, Jesus is suffering on the cross. He is suffering on the cross, but his mind is still sharp. His mind is still sharp, full of Scripture, focused on fulfilling it. He is in control of the situation. He's in control of the situation. How do we know that he's in control of the situation? Because those perpetrating his crucifixion, they had no knowledge of Scripture. They had no understanding of Scripture. They just normally did what they did at every other crucifixion. They just normally did what they knew that they were supposed to do. Yet in spite of their ignorance, they fulfill Scripture because our Savior is sovereign and he's in control even here at the cross. This week I came across this definition of sovereignty. It says, so sovereignty simply means that the Lord knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. The Lord knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. And here, as he hangs on the cross, Jesus is sovereign. He knows what he's doing, and he's doing it. It's not out of control. He's very much in control of the whole situation. And so here we see his deity. He's focused on fulfilling God's word. He's focused on fulfilling God's word. He is, he is in control of the situation. But we also see his humanity. Because now John tells us he speaks one word in the Greek. I thirst. I thirst. It's a strong desire. It's to feel, to need, or to want to drink. It's lacking liquid needed to sustain life. It's a very natural physical reaction. He is thirsty, and it makes sense, right? It makes sense that he is thirsty. He has been suffering on the cross for six hours. He's exhausted from the excruciating pain and extremely dehydrated. He's hanging on the cross, and he says, I am thirsty. 
I am thirsty. Because who knows the last time Jesus had a drink, right? It's been a long night. We've seen that as we've looked up in this series. It's been a long night and a long day for him. He was, he was put on the cross at 9 a.m. in the morning. He's hung there, suffering and taking the abuse. We don't know when the last time he had something to drink. We know the last time he was offered something to drink. Right before he was hung on the cross, they offered him a drink of wine mixed with myrrh or, or gall. And, and it tells us that in, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15, but he refused it. And this was a drink that they customarily offered to those who, who were going to be hung on a cross because it acted like a narcotic. It would, it would subdue them. It would calm them down so that when they, when they put the nails through their, their hands and their feet, that they wouldn't struggle. When they hung on the cross, that they wouldn't struggle. But Jesus refused it. He said he didn't want it. He was fully aware and awake as he hung on the cross. But he's thirsty. He says, I thirst. And it reveals he's just like us. He gets thirsty. We see his humanity. And right after he, he, he mentioned his, his statement saying that he thirsts, something else happens. We see his humanity and his deity working together. The end of verse 28, Jesus says, I thirst. And then John in verse 29 says, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and he held it to his mouth. Jesus uses a physical need, thirst, to meet a spiritual need to fulfill scripture. Jesus in his omniscience knows that one more prophecy needs to be fulfilled before his death. So he speaks and makes it happen. He says, I thirst. And to no no surprise to Jesus, after he expresses his thirst, they offer him a drink. They offer him some of that sour wine. They do exactly what he wants them to do and what he needs them to do. And this fulfills... David's prophecy in Psalm 69. In Psalm 69, David's crying out to God for salvation from his enemies and the trouble that he finds himself in. But also in Psalm 69, there's, there's prophetic points to it that point to the Messiah and the salvation that he offers at the cross. And on Psalm 69, 3, we see David cries out and says, I am weary with, with my crying out, but my throat is parched. David says, my throat is parched, and that points to Jesus hanging on the cross when he says, I thirst. I thirst. Later on in Psalm 69 and verse 21, David says, they gave me poison and food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. And that's fulfilled in John 19, 29, when Jesus says, I thirst, and they offer him some sour wine on a sponge on a hyssop branch to drink. When Jesus said, I thirst, he knew either a soldier or an onlooker would take some of that sour wine and they would offer it to him. And make no mistake, those who offered it to him, their motivation wasn't to fulfill scripture. Their motivation wasn't even compassion. Their motivation was they wanted to give him a drink so it would prolong the agony of him hanging on the cross, prolong their entertainment as they watched it. 
But in Jesus' mind, obeying his Father and fulfilling Scripture was his supreme motivation. He knew that that's what he needed to do. There's one more thing that needed to happen. And with one little Greek word, dipseo, I thirst, Jesus communicates that he is in total control of this situation. He might be the prisoner hanging on the cross, but really he's the puppet master pulling the strings, making everything happen here in this situation because he is sovereign. And so it's interesting. We see his humanity and his deity working together as he has complete control over this situation, over the situation surrounding the cross. And so we've looked at what's happened before this I thirst statement of Jesus from the cross. We looked at what he was thinking and, and what he said. And let's conclude our time together by looking at how this statement challenges us. How does it impact us this morning? I think it impacts us in a number of different ways. First of all, for those of you here this morning who don't know what to think about this Jesus character, I know what he thinks about you. He loves you and he wants to know you. And you need to know that we're so glad that you're here. We're glad that you've come here. You're always welcome to come here. And we love nothing more than to answer any questions that you may have about this Jesus character. Because we know who Jesus is. He was God's son who came in the flesh, who lived a perfect life, who went to the cross and died for our sins, who three days later rose again from the dead And then when we believe in him, when we put our faith and trust in him, our sins are forgiven. That's who Jesus is. It's not a club to join. It's not a list of good things to do. It's a person to believe in. And when we put our faith and trust in him, we are forgiven and we have eternal life. We receive eternal life. And so if you're here this morning and you're just trying to figure out who is this Jesus character, hey, thank you so much for being here. We'd love to talk to you more about this Jesus. Love to tell you why he's so important to us. So come to us. We'd love to have a conversation. But for those of us who know and follow Jesus, I think there's two real challenges from his I thirst statement. The first challenge is this what are we filling our minds with? What are we filling our minds with? It's clear from our text today and from his entire life that Jesus' mind was full of God's word. It was full of God's word. Tim Keller said this. When you prick Jesus Christ, when you stab Jesus Christ, he literally bled Scripture. He knew the Scripture so well. He thought about the Scripture so pervasively. It so saturated and permeated his whole being and his imagination and his feeling and his will and his knowledge that it shaped him instinctively. The Scripture shaped every part of him. His nobility, his courage, his peace, his faith all happened because he was saturated with Scripture. And from the beginning of Jesus' ministry, remember when Satan took him, uh, led him into the desert and he was tempted three times by Satan, he responded each and every time with Scripture. He didn't give in to Satan's temptation because he, he battled back with Scripture. So he's hanging on the cross and he quotes from, from Psalm 22:1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the beginning of his ministry to the end of his ministry, his mind is full of Scripture. So the question for us is, what are our minds full of? What do we fill our minds with? We fill our minds with a lot of good things, with a lot of interesting things, right? But the problem is, when, when, we, when we fill our minds so much with good things that it keeps us from filling our minds 
with the best thing, that becomes a problem. That becomes a problem. And the best thing is God's word. And so we can fill our minds with so many other things that it keeps us from filling our minds with God's word. And I was convicted of this too, this season of Lent. I love sports. I love to listen to sports talk radio. I love to watch sports talk shows. And I find myself listening to so much sports talk shows, and Dana would say all the time, they're just saying the same thing over and over and over again. And you know what? They do. And I was convicted. Like, I am filling my mind with good things, but it's not the best thing. It takes away from me filling my mind from the best thing. And so I gave it up for Lent. I said, you know what? I need to focus on more of what God wants from me and God's word. And so I did that. But filling our minds with good things becomes a bad thing if it keeps us from filling our minds with the best thing, God's word. So what are we filling our minds with? The second challenge is this. What are our lives focused on? Are our lives focused on obeying God? Jesus' life was focused on fulfilling God's word. He claimed every day as an opportunity to obey his father's commands. What are our lives focused on? We live in a distracting and demanding world. And I don't know about you, but my week sometimes is so scattered and so stressful that my sole focus is I just want to survive. I just want to make it to the weekend. I just want to make it to the weekend. If I make it to the weekend, we're successful. It's been a successful week. But Jesus' life was crazier than our lives. And he was always focused on obeying the will of his Father. And we see it time and time again. It just wasn't lip service. He lived it out in his life. The night before the crucifixion, he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. He prayed three times that the cup of God's wrath would pass him. That God, is there any way that, that I don't have to, to go to the cross? And at the end of every one of those prayers, what did he say? He prayed, but not my will, but the Father's will. Even at the end of his life, as the cross is coming, his mind is focused on obeying his Father, obeying God's command. Jesus was laser-focused on fulfilling God's word. What's our life focused on? As I was thinking about these, these two things go together. You can't fulfill God's will if your mind's not full of God's word. You can't fulfill God's will if it's not full of God's word, and Jesus was both. And so the challenge for us this morning, I think, as we look at this is, what are we filling our minds with? And what's the focus of our life? And I don't know about you, but it's a challenge that I needed to hear. Because I can get off target, and I can get distracted, and I can get focused on other things. But as we look at Jesus hanging on the cross, his challenge to us, I think, is very simple. The sovereign God, in control of all the situation, his mind was full of God's word, and his focus was fulfilling God's will. And as his followers, he wants the same for us. It's our choice. It's a new week. We may not have done well this last week. Got a new week. We're going to fill our minds with what's the focus of our week going to be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the opportunity that we have just to look into your word. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for, for being our Savior. And Lord, we come to you and we, we ask for forgiveness because it's so easy to get distracted. It's so easy to get wrapped up in our own little world and fill our minds with, with all kinds of stuff that we lose focus on you. We, we, we don't fill our minds with your word and our lives aren't focused on obeying you. And so, Lord, this morning we pray that 
that you would help us this week as your followers to make that a priority. And Father, we pray if there's anybody in here this morning that's just trying to figure out who this Jesus character is, Lord, I pray that that you continue to help them to search and to look for you because you will find them. I pray that they'd realize they're welcome here and, and we're here to do everything we can to show them who you truly are. Father, we thank you for Easter. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for the hope that it gives us. We thank you for Jesus' example. A mind full of the truth of your word and a life focused on living and out and obeying you. And Lord, may we walk out of here today and live this week focused on trying to do our best with your help to do the same thing. In Jesus' name, amen.